two weeks ago, we looked at and um, uh, took quite a bit of time, looked at the crucifixion of Christ. And, and we looked at, that ended in verse 30, where uh, after, remember when Jesus said, I thirst, and, and then they, they gave him sour wine, which was vinegar, essentially. Uh, they gave him sour wine, and then after that, he very clearly spoke, it is finished. And, and we talked about that. I'm not going to go into detail on that again. But we talked about all that is meant in it is finished. Because when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. And there's nothing more. He didn't have to go down to hell and suffer and you know crazy doctrines out there that try to tag things onto uh, the crucifixion. No, it, it, he had atoned for sin and fully atoned for sin for any who would come, for humanity. So you just can't take weird doctrines from that. And if you don't remember that, I invite you to go back and look at the video on Facebook or YouTube or whatever, uh, just because it's so important that we are grounded in good doctrine. And so we looked at the crucifixion. We looked at what is meant by it is finished. And then last week, we looked at, we, we took some time out uh, I tried to get to John chapter 19, but we never did, uh, which is sort of customary for me, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but we looked at seven things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. We looked at sins forgiven, wrath taken away, that we no longer store up wrath. We actually have it removed from our account. We looked at uh, never-ending supply of grace at, at, at immeasurable grace, more grace than you could use, that you can't out-sin the grace of God. Uh, we looked at death, no longer has a sting for us, for any believer, that death has been taken care of, has been taken out of the way, because Jesus died for sin and death. I mean, he took it out of the way. That's the proof that we have in the resurrection. We'll get to that uh, coming up. Uh, we looked at hell, that we no longer have to be fearful of hell. And does the world have to be? Absolutely. The world has to be fearful of hell because it's a real place. It's not, it's not outer darkness. It's not the dump outside of Jerusalem, Gehenna, even though Jesus used that allegorically, uh, been there and, and they essentially came to the end of the old city and pushed all their garbage off a cliff. And then every now and then they would go and sprinkle, sprinkle sulfur on the refuse, I mean, including bodies. I mean, it was a gross place. And they would burn all of the stuff up. That's where fire and brimstone comes from, fire and sulfur. That's what brimstone is, it's sulfur. And they used it to burn the trash in the dump, which is in the Valley of Gehenna, prior to the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. So anyway, we looked at, at hell no longer having a hold on us. Because the Bible tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were by nature children of wrath and we were not destined for heaven. As a child of wrath, my eternal disposition was hell before I gave my life to Christ, before I turned from the old life, repented of my sin, and, and received Christ into my life, into my heart, to come and to set up housekeeping, to govern my life now. Not about a summer camp decision you made at 16, as I've mentioned before. It's about a, a living, vibrant relationship with a living, vibrant Lord. And, and that 
He wants that relationship. He pursues that relationship. Uh, we've looked at that and, and it, it, we talked about him bringing ultimate healing. Uh, that in, in heaven there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. And that he doesn't always heal here. We have to pay attention and, and give way to the, the sovereignty of God because his ways are beyond, beyond our ways. They're, they're beyond our finding out, the Bible says. So we looked at that, and we looked at the fact that we are guaranteed. It's not a maybe. It's not The hope that we have is not a hope-so hope. It's a no-so hope that we are guaranteed eternity in his presence. And we, we talked about all of those things, as good as they are and as, as essential as they are to understand, but all of them point to something. And they point to the fact that each one of those was designed, as Peter says uh, in First Peter 3, to bring us to God. Because the end is not just to have my sins forgiven. The end is not just to have eternal life. The end is not, see, all of those things, they're not an end to themselves. There's a point to them, and the point is Christ. The point is a relationship. Having taken my sin out of the way, having taken death out of the way, having, and, and all of those things, that it's that I could have uh, this beautiful relationship with him, and that he does dwell with us. He dwells within us. He's not some God that's far off. He kind of spins it all into going and, and then walks off and leaves it. He's intimately involved in the affairs of our lives. Uh, I came across one passage before we move on into this morning's text. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And, and the picture I have, have you ever seen those pictures? It was like It's like Jesus holding this guy and he's kind of slumped over in his arms. When we're without strength, Jesus literally, in, in, in the spiritual realm, the things he accomplished on the cross carries us to God. It's not through human effort. There is nothing I can do to add to the work that he did. It's not about me doing, you know, nice Sunday things and, and doing being a good Christian and all of that. I mean, and, and I, I, I avoid the word good Christian because it's kind of weird. I mean, we know that God is good. Uh, when, with the, uh, I could rabbit trail so easily in the rich young ruler right now because he said good teacher to Jesus, and, and Jesus had a whole thing to say about that. But the point is, is that we, when we were without strength, when there was nothing we could do to affect our own salvation, when there's nothing we could do but to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, he picks us up and he carries us to God. What a beautiful thing that is. So moving forward, picking up where we left off uh, in verse 30 two weeks ago, I'm going to start in verse 30 this morning. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, has this to say. He says, life ended. Uh, the group of his own disciples, because he was dead, had lost their hope of life. Think about what the disciples went through from Friday afternoon when they watched him die. We see the end from the beginning, but they didn't. They were thinking, it's done. This is it. It's over. Might as well just go home. After the feast, let's just go home. I, I, I am, I'm done. Because they would have, they would have been in such inner turmoil having walked with him for three and a half years and then seeing that 
watching him die. I mean, perhaps eyes open, mouth dry and open, no movement. And I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just saying that they saw him dead. And nobody had ever risen from the dead, save Lazarus, for a while until he died again. But uh, life ended. They had lost their hope of life. Light extinguished is the next thing that Morgan says. He says, the only perfect light that had ever shown in human history after humanity had broken with God was put out in darkness. The last thing he says is love eliminated. Oh, but the world was full of love. No, that's lust, not love. The incarnate revelation of life and light and love had been put to death. That was the world's verdict, the dead Jesus. But he doesn't leave it there, and nor shall we, because we know that there are, and Jesus with his men, when he was working with his men, those, those final hours in the upper room and beyond, when he was working with them saying, look, it's going to get really, really bad. But I want you to understand there's something on the other side of that, and I don't want your faith to fail. Because the events that these guys were witnessing at this point, they were in very real danger of their faith failing. Were it not for the words of Jesus to just to urge them, look, persevere through this, press through this, go forward, because there is good stuff on the other side of it. Uh, and Morgan says, I have no desire to leave that impression upon the mind as final. And if I had, I could not do it. We're all conscious that there is something else to be said, and the light of it is already breaking through for us. For the moment, however, we are concerned with the dead body of Jesus, and that's where we look at and where we go forward this morning, because when Jesus said it is finished, we spent time on that, look at it, but we're pressing forward there. And what we're going to do is I'm going to blend the four Gospels just a little bit. Well, actually, I'm going to just look at three of them. We're not going to get into depth on that. I could spend the next month talking about the burial of Christ. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear. I'm laying out for you the important stuff. I'm paraphrasing. And he says that the scriptures would be fulfilled, that he died on a cross, and that he was buried and by the scriptures was raised again on the third day. And when Paul talks about that, he's giving the heart of the gospel. The burial of Jesus is part of it. Why? Because he had to be dead. And, and I don't mean to sound too strong on that, but it's a very strong thing. If he had, for instance, when it, we're told that he was buried in, in a, a wealthy man's grave that had never been used, if that had been used, the Jews could have said, well, you know, because they were, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, there were ossuaries, bone jars, bone boxes in these graves. Well, his, his body touched uh, that of a prophet or some prominent guy, and, and that he came back to life because of it. Hogwash. There are those that cannot accept the miraculous that try to put forth, well, he was in a coma. No, he was dead. And he had to be dead in order for the whole thing to go forward with him being the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world, and then he had to be approved 
by his father. His sacrifice had to be approved. Was it? Of course it was. Why? Because he was the perfect man. He had, he who had no sin became sin that we could become the righteousness of God is what Second Corinthians tells us. So it's very important that we understand that the death of Christ is absolutely crucial to our salvation. And yet also the burial of Christ is crucial to the transaction, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Uh, in Matthew 27, uh, we read that, and, and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put it on the screen because we're going to go through this rather quickly. Uh, that in from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness was over the face of the land. Now, if you remember what Jewish days were consistent of, is that it started at sunrise. And it ended at sunset. And what they did was they divided the day into 12 equal parts. So noon would be the middle of the day, halfway between sunrise and sunset. In the winter time, they had shorter hours because those hours were divided into 12 parts from sunup to sunrise. In the summertime, they had longer hours. And it would have been kind of hard to track with a watch, but they didn't have watches. So I guess it was okay. But the point is, is from the sixth to the ninth hour means from noon, because 12 parts, the sixth hour means noon until three. And, and so from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the face of the land. Uh, and interesting as well, just as a sidelight, when you look back in Exodus and you look at when the, the Passover lamb was sacrificed, it was sacrificed at a time of day that they called twilight. Guess what time that was? It was three in the afternoon. And so these, these final hours where Jesus is on the cross from 12 to 3 were the hours where he was agonizingly going through this process of crucifixion. And crucifixion was, re it was the worst kind of torturous death that a man or anybody could suffer. It was so bad that the Romans exempted their own citizens from it, no matter how bad they were. Because what they did was they nailed the guy to the cross, uh, hands and feet, and and then what would happen was that he would have to use his feet to push himself up to be able to breathe. And, and in order to breathe, he, he be, to get a breath, he'd have to come up. But then the pain would be so bad, he'd go right back down. And so it was literally, there was no way out from this thing. And as he wore out and as his life waned away, he would have a harder and harder time pushing himself up to breathe. And he would eventually die of suffocation. There were Many instances that we see in secular history where men would last for days on a cross. Uh, not so with Jesus. And we know that that's because when he said it is finished, he literally gave up the ghost. He was finished. He said, I have the power to lay my life down. And he laid his life down. And then he says, I have the power to take it back up. So the ninth hour was when the Passover lamb was killed. It was also at the ninth hour where in Matthew he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's fulfilling prophecy here all the way through the prophetic. These events are absolutely packed. They're packed with prophetic significance and fulfillment. And when he says that, uh, he's, he's quoting Psalm 22, 1. And, and Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Uh, it also tells us that in Psalm 22 that his mouth was parched. I covered that last week. We talked about how he, w- he would have been so dehydrated that his tongue would have been stuck in his mouth and he wouldn't have been able to speak very clearly. And we see here that as he said these words uh, here in Matthew, that as he spoke them, they thought he was talking and he was calling for Elijah. They couldn't understand what he was saying. So that, that's when they gave him the sour wine, the, the vinegar, so that he'd be able to speak clearly when he said it is finished. So uh, Luke inserts one thing in here as he is saying it is finished. He says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So, again, John doesn't cover every detail. That's why we're blending this a bit, because there is a lot that's going on that John doesn't cover. And and we'll look at that in a few minutes again as to why. Uh, But in, in Matthew 27, verse 51, it says, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Matt was praying this morning about that veil being torn. And, and, and yeah, is that significant? Absolutely significant. Because the veil in the temple and prior to that in the tabernacle was where God separated himself from man. Why? Because God is holy. He is absolutely pure as relates to infinity. He is so consumingly pure that when Moses wanted to take a look at him, he said, no, Moses, you can't. It would kill you. Because man is depraved. We, we are by nature, we have that, that nature of Adam. And, and to look upon him, no. It, it, his holiness is so consumingly pure that whenever you look in God's word, we were talking about the men's breakfast yesterday, that whenever someone saw God, you look at Isaiah, you look at Ezekiel, you look at the Apostle John, when anybody was in, in, in the place of seeing God in his glory, there was only one response. You're on your face. Uh, I, I, I get weary when I look at these people who are, you know, holding up their cell phones at the glory of God and some of these weird deals, the organizations that are out there calling themselves churches. Uh, and, and they're holding their cell phones up and, and looking at glitter that somebody pumped through the air conditioning and calling it the glory cloud. It's like, no, 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 no. You insult the work of God in doing that. And so uh, here, the veil is torn. It's to signify that God had said, I want to dwell with my people. And in dwelling with his people, he had to set a barrier between himself and man because of his holiness, because man had not had his sins eliminated. And that's why all through the Bible, you look all through the Old Testament, you see that there is always a separating between the presence of God and man. The only time that the glory of God, not God himself, but the glory of God was seen was with the pillar of of fire and the pillar of smoke in the Old Testament that they followed the the tabernacle around in the wilderness. So God allowed a manifestation of himself to be seen, but he himself dwelt over the ark mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, separated from man, except for one day a year when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and atone for sin. So the point in that is, is that when the veil was torn, it was a good thing. Oh yeah, the Jews would probably sew it back together. It was like a 70 foot high curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And, and yet, what it was signifying was that God was no longer separate, separated from man. That Jesus, the work that he accomplished on the cross was now 
we have complete access to God. That anybody who will come having themselves cleansed, washed by the water of regeneration is what we're told in the Bible, in the New Testament, that anyone who would come by faith would be cleansed and now could inhabit the same place as God. That God now can not only be approachable, but he comes to take up residence inside of us. All of this is necessary in the transaction of what happened on the cross. And when that veil was torn, it was signifying there's a whole new deal that's coming into play. It's no longer going to be based on endless sacrifices of animals. But now that the one sacrifice for all had been had taken place, the way was clear and open for people to come to God directly. No longer needing a priest, no longer needing an earthly priest. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest, far better. Uh, but that veil being torn was absolutely significant, opening the way for you, for me, to come directly to the presence of God. Fabulous stuff. It says that the rocks were split and the earth quaked. I read something yesterday that said that men's hearts were so hard that they couldn't be opened. But the rocks split at Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, another thing about the veil that I think is interesting, I, and I was thinking about this, uh, one of the things I read was that Whenever the Jews were upset about something, I mean, really incensed about something, they would tear, they would, they would rent their clothing, is what they call it, and they would grab their, their tunic or their shirt or whatever, and they would rip it. Uh, and that was to demonstrate. I mean, you look at it over and over again, several places come to mind, but I, I want to cover some ground here. But, but that they would be incensed at what was going on. And one of the guys said, you know, think about God reaching down from heaven, being incensed and tearing that veil uh, at the work that men were doing by putting his son on that cross. I just throw that out there. I don't know if that's accurate or valid, but it's a it's a pretty interesting picture. Um, verse 52 here in Matthew 27, it says, And graves were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died. Sleep is a euphemism in the New Testament for death. The uh, bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I want to stop here for a second and just comment. This is one of the strangest things in Matthew's gospel. And he kind of leaves us hanging. He doesn't tell us what this is about. Evidently, something went on when Jesus hung on that cross, when he gave up the ghost. And, and the power that was released in that, I have no idea. I'm, I'm speculating here. I'm totally, I'm, I'm into the weeds on interpretation here, folks, because there's nothing said. None of the other gospel writers talk about this. Uh, and evidently there were some who were not regenerated to life as far as like resurrection life, but in the same way as Lazarus, they were reanimated to die again. So I, I there's a clear difference, I think, that you could strongly make there, but we really don't know what that's about, other than Matthew puts it down, and, you know, I believe it happened, but there's not much that's said in other places of the Bible. The point is, is they were resuscitated somehow, um, and they lived to die another day. Verse 54 in Matthew 27, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Think about it. These are the guys that just killed him. 
I mean, yeah, under Roman instruction, but they were the ones who, they talked about it before, there were four of them primarily, but there would have been a lot of soldiers milling about that day because there was a huge crowd back when he was at the Praetorium at Pilate's place. And it tells us that there was a multitude there and there had been a lot of soldiers that were there when he was arrested. And so it's you could pretty well conclude that it wouldn't be just four guys here at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and a few of his disciples and nobody else is around. No, there's a crowd. Uh, and so it's entirely possible, though, that these, his own executioners, that they came to faith, that they came to believe, uh, the centurion himself saying, this is the Son of God. Uh, the only correction I make is this is the Son of God, not was the Son of God. Uh, but his understanding would be broadened as he went. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we see that Jesus from the cross praying for these guys, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea. what they're, they, they know not what they do. Uh, interesting. Uh, I love the fact that the gospel is not just extended to those who've got it together. It's not just extended to people who are doing it right in society. It's extended to all. Even these guys, I mean, yeah, of course, in the penalty for them not carrying out the executions, they would be executed themselves. That's how Roman law worked. But still, uh, we see here at the cross, not just the thief, but the soldiers themselves being profoundly impacted by the events that they were witnessing, that they were actually a part of and were as a result of their hand in it. Back to John chapter 19, verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Does this strike you as weird? I mean, as really, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of sickening. Uh, here's something that Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, their consciences were not wounded by the murder of Jesus, but they were greatly moved by the fear of ceremonial pollution. Religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. These guys were more worried about fulfilling what it says in Deuteronomy that you, if you, you hung a guy on a tree, you can't keep him there overnight. Don't do it. It'll curse you. It's, it, 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 paraphrasing, but that's what it says. And they're more concerned about fulfilling their ceremonial obligation than what they had just done. And they knew that he was genuine. They knew that he was who he claimed to be. That's why they put him out. They could not handle the fact that he was drawing the crowds away from them. And with the crowds away from them, the money was going away from them as well. Talked about Annas' Bazaar and all that was connected to the, the feasts in Israel in that day. It says that it was a high day. Uh, now, this would be the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll show you some slides. But we'll hold on that for a second. But it's, it, the, the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread would be a holy convocation uh, on the first day. It was actually a week-long feast. It was an eight-day-long feast. And on the first day... The Old Testament says there will be a holy convocation. What that means, the same thing we saw when we were looking at the Feast of Tabernacles back when Jesus, I think it was in John 8, I don't remember the address right off, but, but when he stands up in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles during the holy convocation, which was a, it was a high Sabbath, 
And it was, a, it was a solemn thing. It was a very solemn occasion. And all of Israel would gather, uh, and in this case, right on the tail end of Passover. Uh, I'll show you that in a minute. But so this holy convocation on the first day, it says it was a high day. John says it was a high day, and that's what it means. We're moving on from the Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then we'll get into the Feast of First Fruits as we go. Deuteronomy 21 it was very clear that nobody would be left on the cross is the point there. I've got a couple of charts I want to show you. Uh, one is the feasts of Israel. This is something I, I made up a few years back. Uh, I was teaching on something else. But uh, I want to take a minute and get you to understand what's going on here and some of the prophetic fulfillment and significance that's going on. Uh, there were seven feasts in Israel in Jesus' day. There were spring feasts. And there were fall feasts. Now, the spring feasts, if you look at the purple line on the bottom, these were fulfilled during the first coming of Christ, during Jesus' time on the earth. All right? There was the Passover. And what that was for was, for Israel, was about the deliverance of the Israelis or Israelites from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt. And then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, the Passover's on Nisan or Abib, depending Hebrew or uh, what they used in Jesus' day. It was actually uh, uh, an Assyrian word. It had its origin in Assyria, but Nisan or Nisan uh, was, was on the 14th was the Passover. On the 15th began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're in a hurry to get Jesus off of the cross and into the tomb because this is a high Sabbath that's coming, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is upon them, and it would last from the 15th through the 22nd. And it's, again, it lines, his burial lines up hasty as it was, because, and we'll see that in the text as we go, and it lines up with when Egypt, Israel hastily left Egypt. They had to get out of there. If you remember the story back in Exodus, we're not going to go back and revisit it. You can check it out on your own. They needed to leave, and they needed to leave now. And, and they were in a hurry. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, is significant and it's tied to the burial of Christ. Now, on Sunday, the following day, on the 7th, the 16th, I'm sorry, of uh, Nisan, would be the Feast of First Fruits. All of these feasts, the, the, the spring feasts were tightly closed together. The first three, they're close, they're back to back. And so Jesus dies on Passover, fulfilling all that was pointed to with the Passover lamb. He's hastily put into the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you understand, let's go to the next slide to the close-up here. We've got a close-up of that. So he dies during Passover, or on Passover. He's put into the tomb, and he's in the tomb over the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and leaven, if you remember, if, you, if you've looked in the Old Testament, leaven is yeast. And yeast is symbolic in the Bible of sin. And so what he's talking about when he's, when you, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the feast symbolic of sinless flesh. Think about it. Who's in the tomb? The only one who could claim that in all of history. So he's put into the tomb hastily during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Feast of the First Fruits 
What is Jesus' title? One of them is he's the firstborn of the resurrection. I mean, there's a total fulfillment of these Jewish feasts as Jesus goes in the first coming. He fulfills all of them. And now, what we were talking about the other night in our men's group, that, that there's that in the law, and I, I'm not going to go into it in great depth, but there's more here. If you look at 50 days, you see where it says 50 days until Pentecost. Well, when Israel left Egypt, that was when God inaugurated the covenant of law with them. Covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. It's not our agreement with him. It's his agreement with us. He says, this is how it's going to go. So he says, here's the covenant. Now, 50 days later, he ratifies the covenant when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets of the testimony, with the Ten Commandments, and he says, here it is. That's a ratification of the covenant of law. When Jesus at the Last Supper is sitting there and he takes the cup and he says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until it's fulfilled in my Father's kingdom. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what he's doing there is he's inaugurating the new covenant, which would be inaugurated by his death and resurrection 50 days out on the exact same date at the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given a total fulfillment of all that was written before. When Jesus said the volume of the book, the scroll of the book, referring to the entire Old Testament, he said, it's written of me. It's written of me. If, and if they'd have been looking, they would have known that then. That's why when he wept over the city, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem you've killed the prophets. You've done away with those that I've sent to you. And, and because you have missed the day of your visitation, clearly shown in the Old Testament, could go into that, We'll talk about it maybe at Easter, look at the resurrection. But clearly they had missed the day of their visitation, and God had made provision for them to recognize it. And here we see that it's no longer on the basis of law, but it's on the basis of grace. And he ratifies the covenant he has in his blood, the covenant of grace, 50 days out at the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, I love looking at these things. I love, and I, I, there's a purpose to it, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But looking at these things, the prophetic significance of what's going on, there is so much happening here. There is so much going on behind the scenes. There's so much going on biblically, prophetically, and, and in, as far as fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts. Now, if you look at the, the fall feasts, those will be fulfilled yet in the second coming. Uh, you go back a slide, please. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Right now, the church age is between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets. It's the church age. It's symbolic of Pentecost, and Trumpets is symbolic and will find its fulfillment in the rapture when the church is taken up. All right, so the church age, that's where we're at. And so this is past, present, and future. The future fulfillment of these, with the rapture of the church, with the tribulation of the time of Jacob's trouble, and then the millennial reign of Christ when he comes back to personally reign from Jerusalem on the earth for a thousand years. And I'm not going to get into great detail on that. Let's go to verse 32, please. Then the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. Remember when we looked at this passage before, there were two thieves, and one of them did business with Jesus, and Jesus met him that day in paradise. The other one scoffed and forfeited his soul. 
Um, what, what was going on here? When the Romans, when they wanted to hasten uh, someone's death with the crucifixion, remember I said they had to push themselves up to be able to breathe. And, and so what they would do is they would take a large mallet if they wanted to hasten it, and they would go and they would break the leg. They would, they would strike the person's legs and break their bones to where they sagged down and suffocated. Again, horrid, horrid uh, means of death. Uh, and so they would die more quickly. So they, they go to do that because the Jews were saying, you know, hey, if feast of, of the, the uh, unleavened bread is upon us, and, you know, it's a high Sabbath. They don't, we don't want these guys. Most often what the Romans would do with people who had been crucified, if there wasn't some pressing need, yeah, they would release them to family or, or people that they were associated with at times. They, they had to solicit for that, and that's what they do here. But they would most of the time leave the bodies on the cross for the birds and the animals. And it would be a stark reminder to the people of what's going to happen if you decide you want to take matters into your own hands and go against Rome. Uh, that was part of, and it was by design, it was intentional that they would leave their carcasses, essentially, on the cross. Well, this day, the Jews, in preparation for their ceremonial feast, wanted the bodies down. So they take and they break the legs of the first two guys. Uh, but in thir verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, he saw that he was already dead and he didn't break, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water come out, came out. Now, this seems random, but it's not. Um, if the soldier took and pierced his right side, and especially if he went up from an angle and pierced his side, the, the sword first would pierce Jesus's pericardium. And what a pericardium is, it's two, actually two membranes. There are thin membranes that surround the heart. All right. And the heart is actually, is, it's, it's within those membranes. Uh, I know very often that people who end up with a, a condition called congestive heart failure is where there's fluid around the heart. There's so much fluid and it, it, impedes the heart's ability to pump so it pumps real fast and shallow all right that wasn't the case here necessarily but something some i would believe that the stresses involved with jesus's crucifixion would have caused fluid to build up in his pericardium it's called pericardial effusion and what took place then was as the soldier's spear pierced the pericardium these membranes around the heart is that the fluid, water is what they call it. It wasn't water per se, but it was a clear fluid, kind of like what you get when you get a blister on your hand. And so they would pierce that. And then going further, piercing the heart itself, there would be both blood and water coming out. Now, I've heard people talk about before, and I, I get it. Um, they say that Jesus died of a broken heart. He didn't die of a broken heart. He died when he was finished and he gave up the ghost. He laid his life down. However, I think it's very true that he died with a broken heart. So I don't want to take issue with that too much, but uh, just to remain biblically accurate, he didn't die of a broken heart, but he sure died with one because he would love to have been able to, to bypass the cross and accomplish this, but there was no other way. We saw that in the garden. 
Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, that he who knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. Now here's John the evangelist and pastor. I mean, he served as both. Uh, yes, an apostle. Uh, he had an apostolic ministry. Uh, whole deal there I'm, I'm not going to take the time to go into. But he also was an evangelist. And he was a pastor. He cared about the people. Uh, he was very closely tied to the church at Ephesus later in his life. And, and you can look at and read about that in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But he was an old man, and they would carry him. Uh, secular history tells us he was carried into his church, uh, and, and that he would start out by calling them little children. Uh, it's just this wonderful term of endearment. He had a heart for God's people. He wanted to see them get it. And what he's doing here, he breaks through all of this in verse 35 and says, Look, uh, I, I saw this stuff. I watched it happen. And I'm telling you, not just because I want to tell you a fun story, and it's not fun, but I'm telling you not because I'm storytelling here, or I just want to give you an account, but I want you to understand and to make the connection that you may believe. That's his point with his whole gospel. That's why he doesn't go into such detail as the other gospels. He's presenting Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as God, and saying, my point in this is that you would see these things that I saw myself. And I want you to know, my testimony is true. This is not something I'm making up. And, and, and he would not have suffered the things he suffered, nor the other guys dying violent deaths for the testimony of Christ. They wouldn't have done it for a lie. And so he makes the statement, uh, and it's the same as he says in, in chapter 21, verse 24, as he's wrapping up his gospel account, when he says, that you may believe. I've shared all of this stuff, that you may believe. And that's the point of all of this. That's our point here, folks. Uh, I was watching a video the other day, and one of the statements the guy made is he said, you know, I share the gospel whenever I can. I share it with my church even when I know that there aren't any new people there because I don't know if there's somebody out there that perhaps the gospel hasn't yet penetrated their heart. And I think that that's true. We're about Jesus. Uh, I've mentioned before, if you come for the show, you've come to the wrong place. We love you. We want to be able to serve together to glorify God and for this church to move forward to be a light in our community but it's all about Christ. It's not about us. One of the things this video said was, you can tell false doctrine pretty easily. It's pretty easy to be able to assess. If you look, and if what's being presented is about you, probably should stay away from that. If it's about Christ, chances are that's a good message. Because it's, he's all we've got, folks. We're not going to sit here and give some social gospel message on how you can be a better person. I'm sorry, this is not a self-help program. He has no interest in making my flesh look better. It's about dying to self, that Christ would emerge in my life and in yours. That's what it's about. That's what we're about. That We will never be about anything else. Because that's where the power of God for salvation lies. That's where his power to come alongside us as we go through trials is found. It's through the risen, living Lord that we serve. Get ahead of myself for talking about the resurrection. But folks, it's just, it's about the gospel. Good news. That's it. 
And I love that we can be that simple. And yet we know that through the simplicity of the gospel, profound things happen. Verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Uh, in Exodus 12 and in Numbers 9, it talks about not breaking the bones of the Passover lamb. Again, the fulfillment of prophecy going on here, even after he dies. I mean, the prophetic fulfillments keep rolling along after he has given up the ghost. Uh, this is some powerful stuff. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, I want to take a, a bit of a side trip there. Verses 19 to 21, I'm just going to read through this. Uh, Peter says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a, to a lamp shining in a dark place. I love that. We do well to pay attention to prophecy, because it's like a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The test of a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is absolutely valid. If somebody claims to be prophetic in their speech or their writing, and it doesn't come true on one point, you can dismiss everything that person says. That's a safeguard for us, folks. There's a lot of really weird doctrine flying around out there. And, and, and to understand that there is a purpose for prophecy is to bring illumination to the truth. That's what Peter says. It's not for some hype, some circus sideshow looking thing. It's not for you know people jumping through all kinds of hoops and craziness going on. It's so that God can, by his Holy Spirit, show us Look, I talked about it ahead of time. Now it's come about. That should have an effect on you. What's the effect? That you may believe. That you can say, you know what? He did all this stuff. Look at those feasts. All of that stuff. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Like 3,500 years ago from us. And they came to pass and they're fulfilled perfectly. That builds my confidence. That builds my faith that this message is true. And there is no other. That's good stuff. He talks about men being moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking from God. And if that's not the case, understand, folks, you have no obligation to take that to heart. Uh, along with anything else that person says, true as it might be. Because the enemy, you know, he's really crafty at that. He always mixes a little bit of truth with the lie. It makes it more palatable. I remember at my old church, I, I always wanted to do this, and I never did. I wanted to make this big, beautiful cheeseburger that had like half a pound of beef and, you know, with beautiful veggies and all that. But I wanted to hollow out the inside and fill it with decon. You know what decon is? Rat poison. Yeah. And I wanted to put it on a table in front of the, the, the pulpit, you know, and I, I had this is all cooked up in my head. I wish I maybe, well, now I've told you, so you won't, yeah. But, but, but what I wanted to say is, look, this is, would you eat this? And everybody not knowing that, yeah, I'd eat that. That's some good stuff. Look at that's a beautiful amber cheeseburger, whatever, you know, Pastor John. And, and then, it, and then take the bun off and have him see those little blue pellets. Not so good. But that's just what the enemy does. 
He takes a bit of truth. He wraps the lie with a really good-looking thing. He comes as an angel of light, folks. Don't be deceived. It'll look good. We look at the Antichrist. Harvey's been talking about the Antichrist on Tuesday nights. We look at that. He will be, man, he will be looked at and revered as the guy that has all the answers. Man, oh man, where have we been? This guy is going to solve everything. Then he's going to set himself up as God and commit the abomination of desolation. I'm not going to steal your thunder on that heart. So, But seriously, folks, that's how deception works. Nobody comes up and says to you, they'll walk you and shake your hand. Hi, how you doing? I'm going to deceive you now. Are you ready? They're not going to do that. That's why it's deception. Be on guard. Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they'll sh they shall look on him who they pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, they will look on me whom they pierced. I mean, again, this stuff, it's just rolling out. The prophetic fulfillment just keeps rolling out. And in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. So here is Joseph of Arimathea, part of the council. He was a, he was a big kahuna in Israel in those days. He was part of the, the Sanhedrin. He was part of the 70. He was part of the ruling elite. The thing is, he had come to believe. He had come to embrace Christ, but secretly. In John 12, we read back when we were in that part of this gospel, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him. They were secret believers, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And if you remember our studies, being put out of the synagogue wasn't saying you can't come to church. It was losing your life, your livelihood, your family, your place of worship, your whole life disintegrated if you were put out of the synagogue. So they were fearful of that. They would have no place in Israel. In Isaiah chapter 53, again, prophetic fulfillment. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Speaking directly to, and you know, I can't help but wonder if Joseph and Nicodemus I mean, we'll get to him in a minute. But if, if they, I mean, they knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. And did they sit around scratching their head going, I mean, did Joseph go, wow, I'm the rich guy that Isaiah talked about. Wow. I mean, these guys had to know. They had to have some understanding going forward. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I can only imagine that as the lights came on for these guys, that they would be pretty blown away, knowing that they had been used of God in such a significant way as to be part of what was prophesied hundreds of years before. Verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, Nick at night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. All right, so I... You know, I have to say, I struggle with this. I believe it's true. Don't get me wrong. But, all right, even converting from Roman pounds, because these are Roman pounds, all right, for us in U.S., what, what's the French word? Oh, avoir du play or whatever it is. Anyway, it, our unit of measure, um, it, it's about 75 pounds. It loses about a fourth in the conversion. But still, uh, I think about, like, Pet food, you get a 50-pound sack at Costco, 
This guy's hauling one and a half of those full of very expensive spices and ointments that they would use to embalm the body. This is commitment. That's what it speaks to me of. I don't know how he got it there. Maybe it was on the back of a donkey. Maybe he was a big guy. Usually Jews weren't, but maybe he was a big guy and he was strapping enough to hold that along. But he knew what was needed and he knew time was short and he was there. And God pressed both of these unlikely men, both of these secret believers into service. Something else that's really interesting about this for Joseph and for Nicodemus they weren't hidden anymore. This is a public thing. They were essentially outing themselves to the public. How awkward would that be in their lives from that point forward? But they had no other choice. They knew who this Jesus was that now was dead. And they wanted to honor him. And they did. Something I think is interesting too. These guys separated themselves from the rest. Um, I remember I had been a Christian for about three or four weeks. Okay, back lived uh, up in Eagle Point outside of Medford. And uh, a guy that his dad owned the shop where I was subletting from for my sign business. And, and he said, hey, you want to go hunting? I said, sure. I never been hunting. Yeah, I grew up outside of Los Angeles. We went hunting for bottles, cans and stuff. You know, anything I ever shot was with a camera. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Oregonian now. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll go hunting with you. You know, I'm in my 20s and stupid. And so I go on this hunting. He picks me up, takes me to this hunting, on this hunting trip. I get there, and I'm telling you, the whiskey was flowing. There were probably a dozen and a half, 20 guys there from old guys to young guys, and it was just a big drunken mess. And then sunset. And then they decided it's time to go hunting with the spotlight. And I'm going, oh my gosh, that's a prison sentence. And and like I said, I'm a brand new believer. I'm thinking, Lord, what do I do with this? I literally divorced myself from these guys. And I told them, I'm not going to be a part of it. I, I went for a ride with them at once because I didn't know what spotlighting was until then. And it's like, oh, great. You know, the game board rides around in an airplane at night looking for lights. And, yeah, they're going to get me and all this. I was totally freaked out about it. I literally took my sleeping bag out of the camp. And I literally went hunting by myself the rest of the weekend. I got lost in the woods, and they had to find me in the middle of the night. I walked till I found a road, and it was raining, and I had a book I was reading. And, and I ended up starting a fire with the book, which really bummed me out because I wasn't done with it. And, and so it was like, I, and, and you know, it's like I get home and it's like, oh, that was fun. But the point was, I didn't like what was going on and I separated myself off from these guys. And there are times where that kind of thing goes on in our lives. And the Lord says, you going to stand for me or are you going to go with the flow? And these guys, Nicodemus and Joseph, said, well, I'm not going with the flow. I just watched this guy die, and I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe he's the one that Israel's been looking for for centuries. And they separated off. That's a good thing. 
I was really uncomfortable the rest of that weekend, but I was glad that I did. I never got invited to go hunting with those guys again for some reason. Verse 40, then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spi- and with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Okay, so they take strips of cloth and they pack his body with the spices between, you know, they, and they would, have, they would have tenderly gone through and picked the thorns out of his skull. They would have gone tenderly through and washed him. There was a whole ceremony, and I'm not going to get into it. I could go through the whole thing. It's known to us. And, and there would have been a, a, just a beautiful respect and reverence that was taking place with these two men, leaders of Israel with the king as they washed his body for burial and they took strips of cloth and then they used the the ointments and the spices to pack. I can only imagine, do you ever have a smell, a scent come that just takes you back? I can only imagine. It's like when I smell oatmeal cookies, I'm back in the kitchen with mom as a little boy. So that's a hint, ladies. Um, But my point is, these guys could never smell those ointments or herbs or spices ever again without taking them back to that moment. I, I really believe that because that's kind of how our brains are wired. We, I mean, this is a significant moment in their lives. So much for the Shroud of Turin, by the way. I, I've seen the, the National Geographic stuff and I, I've looked at the productions that they made and they hold up this cloth that has kind of a image of a guy on there Uh, for one thing it says in chapter 20 that there was a handkerchief over his face a separate piece of cloth but what they did is they wrapped his body with strips of cloth they didn't put a shroud over him And, and again i think that that's just a big counterfeit and it's it's with people who are obsessed with finding things in the natural And Jesus didn't leave that stuff behind. That's why we don't have an Ark of the Covenant. That's why we don't have the cross. That's why we don't, I mean, that's why he healed differently every time so that we don't have, you know, first church of the holy mud spitters. And, you know, because we would do that. We would deify the thing. And there are big groups out there, very well-known churches that do that. They're totally caught up in the building. They're totally caught up in, in, you know, making all these, plaster and it's like no 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 that's a distraction from the purity of the gospel and so this passage right here i think about what the word of god has to say about how they bury jesus and i see no place for the shroud of turin sorry to burst your bubble if you believed in that but um i I just don't see any place for it perhaps there was some uh, you know blanket they put over him afterwards and all that but none of the gospels talk about that they all talk about this um, as a matter of fact, when Lazarus was resurrected, it said that he had a napkin on his face and he came out bound hand and foot with wrappings. Interesting. Same form of embalming, same form of preparing a body for burial. Verse 41. Now in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. In other words, the things we're told about his tomb is that it was unused. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the different places, you know, the uh, uh, 
Church of the Holy Sepulcher and then Gordon's Calvary, the Gordon's tomb up north of the the, uh, the city wall. Uh, but it was unused. It was owned by a wealthy man. It was near the city wall and it was near Golgotha because they were in a hurry to get it down. That it was unused is significant. As I mentioned earlier, they couldn't say, oh, well, somebody, some dude would had been in there and, and he rubbed off on him, you know, because they would have come up with all kinds of crazy things. It had to be a completely new surrounding. These guys were very spiritistic, and, and they got into all kinds of weird stuff. And they probably would have made some, they, they did make some things up afterwards. But in a tomb, they would embalm someone, and they would leave their body in there generally for several years. And then they would go in after it had broken down, and it was just bones. And they would take the bones and put them in a box. The box is called an ossuary. And when they put the bones in a box, the box would go on a shelf, and they'd have the tomb ready for the next relative. So... And over generations, they didn't just use a tomb for one guy like we do. They used it for the whole family. And so over generations, this tomb would get pretty packed with ossuaries, with different bone boxes. And this is a totally vacant tomb. And that's why it's important, because Jesus was dead at that point. Uh, we do well to understand that there was nothing else going on. He, he wasn't in a coma. He wasn't pretending. He was dead his body was dead and that's one of the most miraculous aspects as we go forward from here and we look at the resurrection and all that that means uh both then and what it means to us because folks our relationship with god hangs on it it's that important so anyway we're out of time so and i oh, we're beyond out of time uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, that we could take uh, just a brief look.